Hey Amazon selling enthusiast, it's Eric here. And if you're tired of the inventory management struggle, I've got a game changer for you. InventoryLab.com. InventoryLab simplifies e-commerce inventory management, integrates seamlessly with Amazon, and even syncs effortlessly with QuickBooks for hassle-free accounting. Go to Milwaukee Mafia slash IL now because your success deserves efficient inventory management. Happy selling. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome to the Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Eric Waltergens. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, what do you got for a topic for us today? All right, so calling this one Felix Lazaro and John Sorcy. Not a very fancy title, but... Just, but but it works. But it works. So we're going to kind of continue. This is basically the second half of the last episode. The last episode was in 1913. We're still in 1913. We're going to finish that up and we're going to move on from this time period. Um, but this is this can be treated as like part two. It's not, but it kind of is. Gotcha. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Okay. So now we're on to April of 1913. The Ronzio murders were in February. Okay. Now we're in April. Barber Joseph Molino is shot five times. No, I'm sorry. He shot at five times. No. Sorry, sorry, (laughs) sorry. No, he shot at five times. Four shots went wild, but one bullet hit him. (laughs) (laughs) And then he died. No. (laughs) No. He was standing at the corner of Jackson and Buffalo, not far from his home in the Third Ward. Uh, The attackers were two men whom Molino denied knowing, and they escaped by ducking into a saloon. So this is just sort of, again, continuing on with this violence of this year. Next, we get Felix Lazaro. He's staying at the White Rock Hotel in Waukesha, but he's shot in the throat, which is not a great place to be shot. No. With buckshot on April 12th, so about a week after this last shooting. He collapsed on the floor of Vincent Sangola and Teresa Corso's grocery store, which I'm sure I ruined that, but okay. (laughs) On the floor of their grocery store on Huron Street, right in the middle of the Third Ward. Uh, He had just left Frank Galliano's saloon. And Frank Galliano's saloon is the saloon from last episode where... They slept on the pool table? Where they slept on the pool table. Yep. So, there we go. Lazaro was brought to a doctor where he was given first aid before being transported to the hospital. His back, chest, neck, and face were filled with both slugs and birdshot, making recovery unlikely, but not impossible. The doctor believed Lazaro would pull through so long as blood poisoning did not set in. The victim managed to tell the doctors, quote, I have no enemies that I know of, and am too poor to be a target of the black hand. That's a legitimate excuse. (laughs) I'll give him that. Police made a raid of everyone in the vicinity, from lodging houses to saloons, and arrested 27 men, including mob boss Vito Guadalabene, his son Pete Guadalabene, his son-in-law Isidore Aiello, and I'm always mispronounce Aiello, so I'm sure I've mispronounced it right now again, um, and he'll come up in the future. The elder Guadalabene was in bed wearing slippers and shirt sleeves at the time. The detectives came in and arrested him anyway. The Guadalabene's called for attorney E.G. Worcester, the same attorney who defended our uh, John Severino last time. 
Interesting. So that kind of creates maybe a little bit of a tie right there. A little bit of a tie. Like, yeah. like of all the defense attorneys, when you're using the same guy, like sometimes that means something. Not always, but sometimes. I want to go a step back a minute because yeah. you said that they arrested 27 people mm-hmm. for this. Yep. And you said there was two people involved, right? We don't know. Oh, okay. It must there, have been were, the f- there were two people who shot, shot the first, the first guy. The second okay. guy, we don't know. But but 27 people, I mean, are they just going and arresting every person they suspect of being associated with the mafia and saying yes? <laughs> okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> In this, I don't know if they do this anymore. I don't think they do. I doubt they could get away with it. That used to be a thing. You would just round up people lock them in jail and start questioning them. And some people might know something. Some people might not know anything, but it was an effective way of getting people to talk if they wanted and, and to try to jail. Try to pin them against each other and yeah. things like that. Yeah. I'm sure that's probably not legal anymore, but it was pretty common. And I kind of vaguely talked about the, the police station bombing. That's a similar thing. I mean, they rounded up just all kinds of people. They went to a saloon in that case, a tavern, a bar, whatever, and well, it was a known hangout of anarchists, and they just arrested Still all of them because they're like, "Well, a bomb went off. It must have been the anarchists." <laughs> so, um, did any of them do it? Probably not. But you know, they thought, "Well, if we question these guys, maybe one of them knows something. something." That's kind of the thing here. I mean, did the Guadalabenes know something? Well, clearly not. If he's in bed sleeping, but <laughs> you know, but they round up who they can. The police told the press, it's the same old kind of third ward shooting. The men who did it escaped and were undoubtedly shielded by their friends. But if it is possible, we are going to find the men who did it. So, yeah, they've pretty much at this point, they're like, we have it's, it's a third ward. I mean, it's, wait, wait, and wait, it's third ward. And we have no idea right now. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. <laughs> OK, Worcester filed a writ of habeas corpus in order to have his clients freed, which was hand delivered to the police at 10 a.m. the next morning. So they actually spent the night in jail. Um, Rid of habeas corpus, for those who don't know the law, is basically saying, if you don't charge my client with something, you can't keep them in jail. You can keep them for a night for questioning, but if you think you're going to keep them any longer without charging them with something, you're, you're wrong. And of course, so once this writ arrives, they do get released because they're not going to get charged with anything. These guys have no evidence of this. The police did not immediately comply, and the district attorney was hesitant to get dressed for court on a Sunday. <laughs> this was a weekend. So the men did actually remain in jail for an extra day. This led to contempt proceedings against the police chief, the police captain, and the jailkeeper. Within a few days, the contempt proceedings were called off when the judge ruled that the writ was not properly drawn in the first place. The writ of habeas corpus... Because the writ was served on a Sunday, and we can't be having writs of habeas corpus or any other legal procedure taking place on a Sunday. Because we would have to come to work, and yeah, we're not working on a Sunday. Yes. Is that basically it? (laughs) Which is actually still fairly accurate to how it works. I mean, if you—I don't know about a writ of habeas corpus, but if you get arrested on a Friday, you're not going to go to court. You know, for your first hearing until Monday, Monday morning. morning. Yeah. So you don't want to get arrested on a weekend. Yeah. Avoid killing anybody on a weekend. Well, well avoid killing anybody. <laughs> well, anybody. Yeah. yeah. Let's put that disclosure out there first. I mean, Please don't kill anybody. But I mean, if, definitely, if you're going to, don't do it on a Friday you're, night. You're not getting out of jail Monday morning <laughs> if you killed somebody. <laughs> 
A theory soon sprang up that there was a white hand society that was behind some of the murders and bombings. One unnamed Italian told the press, quote, The law-abiding Italian people of Milwaukee are not murderers when they kill a man who would shoot them in the back at the first opportunity. It is the law of self-preservation. If the police cannot find the real criminals, the Italians must take their work from them to save themselves. Whoever this anonymous guy is, he's basically saying, like, well, if we form a white hand society <laughs> and we're going around shooting and bombing the black hand society, that's not a crime. <laughs> <laughs> so rather than have the police, you know, deal with these issues, they this is how they handle it themselves. Uh, Felix Lazaro eventually recovered. He didn't actually die. The Guadalabenes were never charged, which they shouldn't have been. Because they were in bed. Because they were in bed. <laughs> and the case faded away. Another unsolved mystery in Milwaukee's Italian colony. But we have another one. We have John Sorcy. John Sorcy is walking to the saloon owned by Joseph and Peter Balistrieri on Detroit Street. He wanted a loaf of bread and a pint of beer. But he was shot. <laughs> Instead, he got shot. I should I shouldn't laugh at that. I just it's, it's fun to it's fun to deliver it like that. Um, stop here for a moment to point out that Joseph and Peter Balistrieri, definitely mob connected guys. Um, this is part of the Balistrieri family that is that's very mob connected, and Joseph and Peter in particular are. Um, these would be I'm not exactly sure how to explain how they are in relation, but they're but they're definitely immediate family, like uncles. Mm -hmm. uh, he had been ambushed, John Sorcy had been ambushed, not far from the home he shared with his half-brother, Joseph. An officer found him sprawled out on the sidewalk near his porch, facing east under a gas lamp. A 12-gauge shotgun with 10 inches of the barrel sawed off was found in the alley between the home and the school 10 feet behind a wagon. It's bad enough you're shooting this guy... You're shooting him next to a school. As many as 100 people were standing around when the police arrived, but no one claimed to have seen a thing. Even a man who had been on the corner at the very same time that the shooting occurred <laughs> had nothing to offer. The police spoke with Peter Balistrieri, who verified that Sorcy had just purchased a can of beer. Not a pint, apparently, but a can of beer. beer. At least it wasn't a bucket of beer. It wasn't a bucket this beer, time. So. Roughly 15 other people were in the tavern at the time, drinking their drinks and eating sea crabs. Talking to Joseph Sorcy, the brother, the police found that the brothers shared a father, but not a mother, so therefore they had only known each other the last few years. They didn't grow up together until finding out that their father had two different families with two different mothers. <laughs> John Sorcy, the murdered man, had previously lived in Racine. His brother Joseph was living off of his son, uh, basically just sitting around while his son worked as a teamster. The brother, Joseph, not the murdered man, had formerly been a fruit peddler. He stopped doing that when he received black hand letters, and he decided that he would rather be retired and live off of his son than pay the black hand. <laughs> <laughs> John Sorcy, the man who's been shot, I shouldn't say murdered yet, but the man who was shot, uh, was brought to the emergency hospital. He had nine bullet holes in his back. A doctor examined his body, and he was, at this point, declared dead. His lungs were both punctured, and blood ran from his nostrils and mouth 
Um, he had golden teeth. The blood was running over the golden teeth, which the newspaper described as very beautiful. <laughs> really? Yes. He had a watch on his body as well as 61 cents and change. These meager items were returned to his family. Speculation around town was that this was another murder connected to the killing of Dominic Leone from a few episodes ago. John Sorcy was said to be good friends with Dominic Leone. After the death of Sorcy, the police started a new method of investigation. All suspects, no matter how unlikely, were measured and photographs. Due to the Italian community's reluctance to rat out their own people, the police found this was the only way to keep tabs on the people in the community. So now, anytime they're rounding people up and arresting them, they are fingerprinting, photographing everything, these guys. Just so they have some record of who's who, because nobody will tell them who's who. Yeah. So you can imagine just how big this this folder or scrapbook or whatever it is they're using. There's all these photos of random guys they're picking up. (laughs) Um, Again, probably not legal today. Yeah, I would. (laughs) Well, you never know. But yeah, you you never know. But usually, getting getting picked up and fingerprinted is kind of you don't usually have see that. that happen to yeah, you. yeah. An informant later said that a man named Sorcy was killed by Pasquale Miliochi, uh, Miliocho, sorry, uh, behind the Detroit school on the order of Vito Guardalabene. Well, this would be the right place. It's a man named Sorci, and it was near the Detroit school. Another Sorci, who was known in the community as Gold Teeth Sorci, was said to be killed in Cleveland on Guadalabene's orders. Now, this was probably a confusion. This was probably one and the same story, just being confused, because it would be very strange that there were two different Sorcis who had gold teeth. So I don't know about anybody being killed in Cleveland. But it does check out that he was by the school, and it is possible that Pasquale Miliocha was the guy. Um, he will come up in future episodes. He later becomes a mob boss himself. Really? Yes. So he is definitely a guy who uh, is rising up in the ranks. It's reasonable to believe that Guadalabene ordered the murder. Um, of course, I mean, he's the mob boss. So if the, mur- the murder is ordered by anybody, it's him. Mm-hmm. And we know that Miliocho was a close associate of Guadalabene because he's a member of the mob. However... There's no evidence to directly connect Miliocho to the John Sorcy murder. Uh, the problem is he was never rounded up. He was never questioned. This came years later that somebody said he was connected. So there's really no evidence to directly connect him. Now, a relative of Miliocho, who I cannot name because he spoke to me privately... Uh, fully accepts that his family was connected to the mafia. He doesn't doubt about that. But he does doubt that this guy was the one who pulled the trigger. Uh, he says that he knew him as being very mild-mannered. And he, would, he wouldn't have killed somebody. That's not who he was. I say the truth will probably never be known. I, I'm not willing to accept one side or the other. I don't know about this. Oh, he was a mild-mannered guy. Yeah, he was a mob guy, but he didn't kill anybody. That's a little fishy to me. But on the other hand, just because an informant said it doesn't make it true. I got to say, though, I could very well see how it was. Like you said, it's a criminal organization. Mm -hmm. They're out to make money. Not all of them are going to be killers. You know, there's going they're going to need those people that are just 
all about making money and coming up with the schemes and the plans to make money. And right, you know, I don't. Maybe I'm being biased on this, but I think like a person that's really into making scheming to make money is not necessarily a killer. <laughs> you know, like I, I think that's a very different kind of person. I, I would agree with you. End. I would agree with you. Um, there's going to be examples that will come up later, but yeah, definitely. I, I agree. I think there's this difference between the people in the mob who are the killers and the people in the mob who are the money makers. And sometimes they're the same, but a lot of times they're not because bottom line, the goal is to make money. Yeah. And you'll find that the guys who are killers, and this is better documented in like Chicago or New York because in Milwaukee, you know, there's not a lot of documentation on this stuff. Um, unfortunately, I'm the only one who writes about this. So you have to kind of, you know, go off of what I've written because I have nothing else to go off of. And on the flip side of that, you said this person that, that told you this was a family member of him, correct? Yes, correct. So, and that's another thing I would say is that I think how he would know that person and how he was as a mob member could be very, very different personalities. It could be. Because I think... Mob mob people have the culture of being very family orientated, correct? Yes. Like they're yes. Like, you know And by the time by the time the family member knew him, he was older, so he wasn't like this young yeah. punk anymore. But but yes, I mean using Chicago as as an example, there were guys in Chicago who if you needed somebody killed, you'd go to the same guys again and again. It's not we discussed this in an earlier episode, but there's this myth that to get into the mob, you got to kill somebody or be involved in a murder in some way. Drive, the, get the drive away, getaway car, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not it's not accurate. And Chicago proves that because you have a number of guys who didn't kill anybody, but they make good money, so they rise up the ranks. And then you have guys who don't necessarily rise up the ranks, but you keep them around because, because they're killing people because for you. Because they're killing people, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, they'll, they'll kill five, ten people for you. You keep coming back every few years, and they're like, yeah, sure. Because mm. once you killed one guy, what's the difference? You just keep going. <laughs> you warm up to it, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a guy uh, in Chicago who, they called him Frank the German, and he was known for that. And he was German, he wasn't Italian. Um, and yeah, he, that's pretty much the reason they kept him around, is just to go out and kill people for them. And I would imagine there would there would be a quite a bit of a separation between those two things in within the mafia, like mm-hmm. and within any sort of organized crime syndicate that's out there. Yeah, not it's not just the mafia, but it's anything. There's always got to be. I don't want to say the brain, the brains and the bronze in a way, and it's not to say that one person can't be both, mm-hmm. but I mean it's very possible that some of the brains might not be the bronze. Oh yeah. no! Abs- absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, you got you got the money makers and you got the muscle men, and sometimes they overlap. A lot of times they don't, mm-hmm. especially because the major major money maker for the mob for most of their history was gambling. And when you're, I mean, if you and I are going out and gambling, we don't have to be that smart. I mean, we take we take our bets, we test our luck, and we might win and might lose. But if you're actually running it. Those guys are really smart. Mm-hmm. They got to know their math inside and out so they never lose money. And 
they don't have time to go kill people because they're running a casino oh, yeah. or a gambling, some sort of gambling oh, yeah, 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 ring yeah, yeah. too on top yeah, of that. Yeah, bookies so, are very rarely killers. Yeah. It's a completely different world. Well, anyway, so... So get, get back, back to the get back to the story. Back to the story. So, so we we wrap this up. Um, this is 1913, and in the previous episode, we started out with 1913 starts January with Vito Guadalabene's home being bombed. We are going to end 1913 with another Guadalabene story. Okay, not Vito though. Pete Guadalabene, the son, is out with. Father Dominic Leone, the priest. The priest, not the one that died. Not the one that died, but the priest. Another man named Dominic Busateri. They leave Milwaukee to go hunting with friends in Brown Deer, which now Brown Deer is part of Milwaukee, basically. Yeah. But, but at this time, it was... Not good hunting land anymore. No, not good hunting <laughs> land. But at this time, it was it was still pretty wooded. So you could go hunt there. Uh, Busateri lived at the corner of Jefferson and Huron. So he was like right in the same neighborhood as these guys. Uh, He had been out of work for several weeks. They were gone hunting for two hours. They stopped in at a saloon for lunch. They continued hunting after lunch. And uh, then Busateri stops while he's walking to check the spring on his rifle. Father Leone later told the coroner that he saw Busateri place the gun against his chest and push the spring with his foot. The weapon accidentally discharged, blasting him square in the heart and killing him instantly. Pete Guadalabene retrieved a nearby man to help, but it was too late. Dominic Busateri's parents were left with a young, dead son. Now, this is... We don't know what happened. The story is they're all hunting. He's got a bad spring on his rifle, and he's trying to fix it or whatever. I don't know. There's part of this that's suspicious. Maybe he was really careless, and this is exactly what happened. But at the same time, any good gun owner knows when you're fixing, cleaning, whatever your gun... You don't point it directly at yourself. And generally, you probably wouldn't have it loaded either. Yeah. I would think. Right. That so, that said, though, the, the one thing I would say about this story that makes me kind of think it might be true uh-huh. is is we talked about with Father Leone in the, in the Pink Church episode that yeah. there's really no evidence to show that he was really a bad guy in any way, that he was associated. If he was right. there... right. You would, well, but it could be him protecting yeah, somebody or whatever, you know, not narking out his own people or whatever. But right. you would like to think that the father would have said, you know, this is what really happened. Right. Now, uh, yeah. I mean, and officially, according to the records we still have, I mean, that's what the official record says. Like I say, it's a little suspicious. The guy is blasted directly in the chest yeah. with his own gun. <laughs> Done yet. Um, not that it doesn't happen, but it's you have to wonder because the only witnesses left are one is the son of the mob boss and the other is a priest. And the priest is hopefully trustworthy. But 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 if the son of the mob boss stuck a gun in the priest's face and said, you know, you ever say anything about this and you're done, yeah, then, you know, the father's probably going to be like, all right, yeah, I'm... That, that's what happened, you know? Yeah. So that's sort of where that went. 
And shortly after this, unrelated, police captain talks to the press and he makes the following statement. We are far more successful in dealing with Italian criminals than in other cities. I don't know if this is true. This is what he's saying. What we need is a law permitting us to confiscate these weapons, and this should be backed with a law requiring every dealer to keep a record of firearms sold. He recognized the limitations of the police because of citizen rights. He said, of course, we could go into the homes in the third ward and just confiscate the weapons now, but by doing so, we would lay ourselves subject to lawsuits and any attorney, by commencing action against us, could recover those weapons. That's extremely illegal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to just go in and confiscate them, you're saying? Yeah. Um, uh, the idea of, of having like a record of all the different weapons that that dealers sell, that's a, that's a fine thought. And Well, and that exists today, right? Uh, to a point. <laughs> I mean, as, as long as a dealer sells a gun, there has to be a record of it being right. registered. So, right. I mean... Right. To, to a point. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's better than having nothing, let's just say that. Absolutely. You know. But but I love the fact that he just sort of throws this out there. You know, we could we could go into the all their homes and just sort of take their weapons. But we would be breaking the law and we would be sued. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. He doesn't actually say we'd be breaking the law, but he says, Yeah, we'd be we'd be sued and they'd get their weapons back. <laughs> yeah. Which of course you would. You can't do that. <laughs> So I I love that like he just openly tells the newspaper like this would be a great idea, yeah. Randomly walking into people's homes and taking their stuff, great idea. <laughs> but that's I mean, I think that just shows how desperate they were to try to clean up this area. They wouldn't have suggested that in any other part of town. They wouldn't have said, oh, we're gonna walk into everybody's house and do it. No, it was strictly this area. That's how bad it had gotten. That's so crazy. And uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what to say about that because it's just like, it's kind of like when you listen to these stories, you wonder like, is this what it was going on all over Milwaukee? But you're right. I don't think we're, so. We're, we're talking about probably one of the roughest parts of the city at that point in time, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. probably without a doubt, the roughest part of the city I mean, there there I had mean, to have been I other areas, so. but it's possible. But well, I mean, first of all, to to be blunt, I'm approaching this as someone who's looking into the history of the mafia. Mm-hmm. So uh, clearly, I'm going to be looking into the history of like the Italian Sicilian community. So I do have that bias, but I'm relying on the newspapers, and the newspapers, unless they're incredibly biased, which to some degree I'm sure they were. I mean, they're not talking about other parts of town. Yeah, this is the same part of town again and again and again. Yeah, because I'm I'm sure that when you're researching this, you're looking up all sorts of murders that are yeah. happening in Milwaukee, yeah. and you're reading about all of them, and it just happens to be that the vast majority of them are happening in the Italian community, basically. Right. Yeah. And so, and again, put this in context, like at its peak. The population was like 3,000 people. And I think that's really obvious too, because it is just insane the amount of names that we just hear over and over again. Yeah. Or, yeah. 
maybe not the same person, but oh yeah, that person was living with this person or that person was that person's cousin or brother or whatever. Right. And which makes it really great for telling a story because every new step along the story, you can reference back back to the previous stories. But yeah, but my point being is like, if this is a 3000 people in this neighborhood and there are multiple murders or attempted murders every single year, that's pretty bad. That is really bad. <laughs> yeah. I I don't know any city in the state today that that's that has three thousand people and is regularly experiencing murders, murders yeah. year after year after year. It's just not a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, that's crazy. That is just insane. Yeah. But uh, then again I Again, like it's hard for to compare it because do you know what a normal murder rate was back then? Because I would assume back in 1913, the murder rates were just generally higher because, I mean, based on what we've heard so far, it mm-hmm. seems like it's easier to get away with murder back then probably than it is today. I, I think they were generally higher. I don't have those numbers so i don't really want to speculate Speculate. but i do i think there's something to that in that yeah i mean back then what do you do you shoot a guy and you run away if nobody sees you do it you're pretty much good to go yeah and their strategy is to just start rounding up people and questioning questioning them yeah questioning them so yeah it's just not a very good yeah it could not have been a very easy job to be a police officer back in that at that point. Oh, in time, absolutely you know, not. And absolutely to, not. You know, they probably walked onto a crime scene and they're like, "What do we do?" Yeah. You know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, you know, when we do these, sometimes I give the police, I give them a lot of crap because they're doing things that are very questionable. I mean, even by the standards of the day, I think we're very questionable, but. It's undeniably a hard job. I yeah. mean, you, you, you see a murder, and if it's not like, oh, obviously it's this guy over here who's holding a knife <laughs> covered in blood. Like, what do you do? Yeah, and and this community, you can't walk in. First of all, you walk in there, you can't speak to half of them because they don't speak your language, but right. more than likely. Right. And then they're also extremely protective protective of each other so they're not going to tell you anything even if they they watch the whole thing they're not going to tell you nothing no matter how they feel about the fact that that person might have been their best friend that got murdered but they're not going to say anything because they're just going to protect the people within the community i mean i i just can't imagine the struggle with that part of it so yeah Yeah, so it's it's crazy (laughs) what do you do i don't know (laughs) So, it makes for good storytelling. It does. It does. So I think, are we wrapping her up? That's all I have. All right. Well, then that concludes this episode and nineteen, the year 1913. We're done with 1913. We're actually jumping into the 20s. All the way up to the 20s. Yeah, I don't know so, where the rest of the teens went. But we're... but but everybody, I guess, just went on vacation for the, sure. so for the <laughs> next seven years. And but they're gonna come back hard in in the twenties, and we're gonna have some good stories for you. Sure. So, 
All right. That wraps up this episode. Gavin, hit them with some contact info. Sure. Please, please email me at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com or visit my website at milwaukeemafia.com. I don't update it all that often, but it does have a fair amount of research that hasn't made it into the books yet. So if you want to see some articles on uh, other crimes that are not yet published, well, that's where you'll find them. All right. And we will be back next week with another episode. I'm Eric Walterkins. It's Milwaukee Mafia. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey, podcast fam, Eric here. And if you're an affiliate marketer or looking to monetize your online presence, you need to know about ShareASale.com. ShareASale is not just an affiliate network. It's your gateway to a world of opportunities. With thousands of high-paying affiliate programs across various niches, ShareASale connects you with top brands ready to collaborate with content creators like you. Imagine earning commissions for simply sharing products you love. Whether you're into fashion, tech, or lifestyle, Share Us Sale has got a partnership waiting for you. Ready to turn your passion into profits? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash shareasale and sign up today. It's free, it's easy, and it's your ticket to unlocking a new revenue stream for your business.